Hello, and welcome to the Glen Mary Unity Podcast. Our work focuses on enhancing understanding, reducing alienation, and fostering reconciliation between Catholics and those within the evangelical and Pentecostal streams of Christianity. Within my work, I'm really blessed to get to meet a number of different types of people and to hear their stories, to hear the ways in which the Lord is working through them and through their lives and through their ministries. And so I wanted to share with you one of those stories today from Joe Tosini. Joe uh, has ministered in the past and has an amazing story of the way the Lord has providentially guided him into the work of Christian unity through efforts such as his John 17 movement, which focuses on bringing Christians together to share their own experience of Christ around the table, and also within uh, ministries out of the Vatican with Caris. He'll be speaking more and more on uh, what these ministries are and what they look like, But what I'm so encouraged by in this conversation with Joe is his optimism about the ways the Lord is working within the lives of Christians and within the faith as a whole. And the amazing opportunities he has had as he's followed the guidance of the Holy Spirit within his own life to bring about a deepening of unity between Christians. So I invite you to enjoy this uh, conversation now with Joe Tosini. So, Joe, thank you so much for joining us on the Glen Mary Unity Podcast. It's good to have you here. I'm very honored to be here, Nathan. Just as to uh, kind of get us started here, and this is just, as we said, you know, coming before we start this recording, just a flowing conversation. Tell us your own story, your own journey into the work of Christian unity from the early pastorate to your own experiences with, with different people within the Catholic Church, within the charismatic movement, and to where you are now working within the John 17 movement and also Karis. Okay. Well, obviously, it's a, it's a, I'll condense 50 years, you know, <laughs> into a little <laughs> bit of time here. But just for my background, so uh, it's always good to know where a person comes from. I'm, uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and my uh, grandparents were immigrants from Italy. So I, I, I was raised, with, I was raised with them. So I kind of have a you know, I'm, I'm an expert in broken English. You know, I can, I can they, they, they came from the, the immigrants who came to this country, not wanting their, uh, wanting their children, grandchildren to be American. So they never taught us Italian, you know, they kind of just wanted, you know, so we had to translate their broken English. So obviously that was a Roman Catholic <clears throat> route. And, um, and so I, so I grew up in Brooklyn and, during the 60s, uh, during that particular time, um, there was a lot of just unrest, obviously, in the United States, in our country and in the world, but, you know, with the Vietnam War and so forth. But as I grew up, the, the church um, wasn't very relevant to me at that time. Um, I'm sort of a, came right after Vatican II, so mostly pre-Vatican II influences, and, you know, like for I can give you one illustration of the way I was raised, where my grandfather on my maternal side, mother's side, he was um, from the southern part of Italy. And my grandparents on my paternal side were from the northern part of Italy. And I learned that there was a big difference between those from the north and those from the south. They weren't really that fond of each other. <clears throat> so, that, But he would take uh, all of his grandchildren when they got to be 13 years old, 12 years old. 
on a tour of New York City. And so one time he took me on this tour. First time he was explaining how to ride the subways and all that. And we got to the church where George Washington gave the first inaugural address, you know, as the president of the United States. And he said, listen, now, we're going in this church. I'm going to show you this church, but don't even think about praying in here. You're not allowed to pray in here. We're Catholic. Wow. You know, <laughs> that's kind of gives you an idea of the mentality at that particular time. Yeah. So as, as I grew during the tumultuous time in the 60s, um, things became pretty irrelevant to me. I really didn't know if there was a God. I, I, um, I didn't have uh, a deep conviction about that. I was kind of part of the hippie generation. And I wound up in Berkeley, California from New York City. I wound up in Berkeley. Jesus. And during, yeah, that was the, that sort of ground zero in 1968 and 69 for, you know, wearing flowers in your hair, going to San Francisco. And, and at that time, you know, we had a lot of signs, peace and love and you know, there was a lot of uh, social justice, the Vietnam War, and I was pretty active in being, uh, um, I guess, an anarchist when it comes to, uh, you know, things. But one thing that happened to me and through a lot of events, I recognized that I did not have the capacity to love. Hmm. And that hit me really strong. We were part of the, you know, if you listen to the music back then, there's always a lot of the culture really expresses itself through music, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there were songs like, come on people now, smile on your brother, everybody get together, try to love one another right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was a, a big thing. The Beatles were, you know, all you need is love, you know, you know, the, 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 the young girl who wrote the song on Long Island, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's the only thing there's much too little of, you know, I mean, those, those things were, they were a vibe back in, in that generation. So here you had this whole generation with, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, um, all these problems, but there was a quest. You know, we knew that the world was a mess and love was the answer. In fact, even one of the songs, I think in one of the songs even the Beatles, they, I think it was John Lennon said, love is the answer and you know that for sure. And so I don't think there was a question on, uh, on love, but, the, but what I had is who's doing it? It's easy to talk about. And I came to the conclusion in a desperate uh, way that I did not have the capacity to love and neither did anyone around me. And biblically later on, after I had my experience with Jesus and reading the Bible, I, I think I can describe myself like Isaiah uh, when he went into the Holy of Holies and the, and the, the year his uncle died, the king died. Right. And, and it says that he realized that he was a person of unclean lips and he dwelt amongst the people of unclean lips and he, and he came to a desperate place. Mm -hmm. And so my born again, you know, John chapter three experience, my encounter with Jesus came when I just didn't know if he existed, but I was desperate and said, I don't, I know, I don't have the ability to love me as anybody else. And if you're really there, if this is true, if you are who you said, you know, I was told you were uh, and gave yourself, could you visit me? And he did. What a I, mean, I, I physically was touched, literally was touched. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt a hand on my shoulder 
And that's a different story because I was a baseball player and I hurt my arm. So there's a hand on my shoulder. And, um, and I knew more than I know this is real right now that Jesus was present. And I had to say yes. And then later on when I read, you know, there's a passage of scripture in Revelation. Behold, I stand at your door and I knock. You know, the, the, your heart's door. And if anyone hears my voice and opens their, that door, I'll come in and I'll live inside. And I remember I had to say yes. And when I said yes, that hand went through my, my whole body. And I wept for several hours. But when I came up from that place, I knew Jesus was real. I knew the Bible was true. And I knew that God's love was the only answer. And, and I was saved. In my our lingo, we would say, I was born again. I was saved. You know? yeah. But what happened, and I'll just summarize this. At that time, as a, as a kid who grew up in a Roman Catholic world, I went around and I went to about 20 so uh, rectories in the Bay Area of San Francisco and California at the time, knocking on the door saying, I need to see a priest. And they would let me in. And I'd tell them this story, the story I just told you. Only I had, you know, I had one addition to it. It was just a few weeks after I had that experience that I wound up going to a Pentecostal church. I had never been in a Protestant church and the pastor of that church just so happened to be uh, an older man who could have been my grandfather, you know, age and his wife. And they, their very close friend was a man named David Duplessy, who was a friend of Pope John the 23rds and who was called by Pope John, Mr. Pentecost. And when they, met me and took me in they um they brought me to their home and it was in their home one day that we prayed and I experienced what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit I didn't even know what it was and I once again had this sort of transcendent experience really transcendent and I started speaking in these other languages you know sitting in this room with a few people around a, a hassock and so from there, I just, I started going around. I went to these uh, rectories and I told these priests, I said, hey, Father, I got to talk to you. This is what happened to me. And I told them this story about everything I just told you. Well, unfortunately, at that time, just about every one of them uh, escorted me to the door and told me to leave. <laughs> and that I was a little bit, you know, crazy. And finally, I, I had talked to my parents and uh, I was telling them about what happened to me. And of course, they didn't know. They thought I had flipped out because I was in Berkeley and anyone who lived in Berkeley in those days was a little bit weird. And they were from New York and they were, you know, their background, as I explained. But my father flew out to California to find out what's going on because the family thought I lost my mind when I said, Jesus saved me. And they didn't know what that meant. And I was, you know and wanted to take me to a monastery for a retreat to get my head sorted out, you know. But when my dad flew out to California and he saw me and he saw what was happening to me and he experienced, he came, he was the one who experienced me being filled with the Holy Spirit when he came. He realized something, something that he didn't understand happened to me. And he went back and told the family that something happened to Joseph that's divine. Mm. Well, they didn't receive that very well. So my mother, who was pretty classical, 
I would say, pre-Vatican II. Uh, well, let me give you just one example. Is this okay if I share this funny oh, please, story? Please. I'm going to roll the clock forward, and then I'll get back. <laughs> Many years after this, doing the work I do now with John 17 and working with bishops and the Pope and, you know, and my mother was always upset with me because of <laughs> the Roman Catholic background and her son was out of his mind and everything else. And here she is, 90 years old, and I bring my friend, a priest here, a bishop, a bishop here in Phoenix, flies to New York, and I, he goes into my mother's home. She's having to convalesce at that time. And here's her confession, gives her communion, and has a mass in her dining room. Mm -hmm. And I'm present. You know, I come in. <laughs> and now this is my, now try to picture, here's her son who left the church, supposed to come on all these years. And now here he is. It's, here he is. He's got a bishop in his house in full regalia. He's got his hat on. He's got everything, right? And, and um, when he finishes the mass, he, he leads out in a chorus. He says, let's sing a little song. And he sings, he sings, he sings, he sings this, this chorus, this charismatic sort of chorus, you know, you know. And as he does, my mother, who's in a wheelchair, is sitting on the other side of the table, looks at him and says, whoa, stop. And she goes, are you really a bishop? <laughs> And she said, or are you one of his friends dressed up like that? Oh, my goodness. Now, think about it. And here's the bishop sitting and goes, what? What? I just heard the confession. I gave it communion. We're having this thing. And your question. And she goes, we don't sing that stuff in our church. That's what he does in those crazy churches that he goes to. Pull, pull over eyes. Yeah, so so I thought I thought that was just kind of to give you an idea a little bit of the world. Sure. You know, but it was wonderful that my mother got to be at the end of her life and laughing that here I was calling her from the Pope's house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so, so the Lord has a way of bringing things. Amen. So going back. Um, so I wound up because of the of the lack of understanding at that time. Um, and one of the monk seniors, he informed me that my experience that I had with Jesus was not really valid, and I just needed to trust the church, and the church was bigger than God. Uh, at one time, God was bigger than the church, but now the church is bigger than God. And it was a really weird experience I had. And that, wow. that, yeah, he actually said to me at one time, he did this thing, he said, one time, this is my mother's pastor. So you have to understand, Joseph, at one time, God was like this. And the church was just like this. And then he said, now the church is like this and God is here. You wow. just need to trust the church. Don't worry about your experiences. With, you know. So that's what, that's what escorted me out. And I wound up going to a seminary and wound up being a minister in, in, in a Pentecostal setting. Okay. So that kind of gives you a little bit of my, yeah, but okay. then, so now let me go to the, the part that, so now after I graduated from school and I was, I had an assignment at a church um, in a university town. And this was in 1974. Uh, I went to this university town to a very small Pentecostal church. 
that had only about 80 people in it and they had no university students and it was a major university town. And the pastor asked me to go on campus and get an application so we can have um, our denomination had a, a, a college ministry and he wanted me to need an application so I could have a room on campus to promote you know, our college uh, outreach program. So as I was walking on campus to do that, it was during the beginning of the fall when they have all the student activity marts where you can join clubs and things. And I was walking by the student union. And as I was walking, it was like I hit a invisible wall. And I turned and looked at these tables. There was about seven tables set up. One was, there was like Baptist Student Union, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, you know, all these different campus ministries that you can join. And um, there was just, just like seven of them there. And the question came to me, not many years before when I was in Berkeley, if I would walk by those tables and looked at that, what would I think? And the answer that came out of me was seven different Jesuses. Hmm. And then I heard, I felt, I heard, I don't want you setting up another table. Hmm. I'm not a polygamist. I only have one church, one bride. And I don't even want you here. I'll bring the campus to you. I'm building a church. Hmm. So I went back and told my pastor, who's you know, a good Pentecostal guy. I said, pastor, I think the Lord spoke to you. <laughs> so I told him the story and he's looked at me really strange. And anyway, but he was kind enough to let me follow what I felt led to do. And that in turn, um, I wound up, I wound up uh, starting a prayer meeting in a home. Uh, and all of a sudden, numerous university students started coming, which was like 15 miles from the campus in a gravel road on a house on a Friday night. Wow. And students got saved by the hundreds. We're, we're coming to Christ by the hundreds. And it was a big deal. And it became a really, really, and it grew. But, but while it was growing, the newspapers in a small university town were picking up what was happening. You know, all of these university students, athletes, professors, there was, it was a real move of the Holy Spirit. I wrote a letter to the pastors in the town, the Baptist pastor, the three Roman Catholic churches, Father John, Mike, you know, and Joe, uh, to um, the Episcopalian church, the Lutheran church. I wrote, I wrote to a bunch of these churches and asked them to come to a lunch. So they came over to the church for lunch. And I was a pretty young guy at the time, obviously, compared to the rest of these guys. And I shared with them the story I shared with you about the seven tables and, mm -hmm. and that, you know, there needs to be one, you know, we have one expression in the body. We have one body with many different expressions, you know, unity and diversity. And I invited them all to come and to speak to our group on Friday night because we had hundreds and hundreds of people come. And, uh, and they thought that was kind of odd, some of them. But in the end, we became friends, a number of them. The three priests became really close friends. And so I called up David Duplessis because I knew him as I started telling you this story. And I asked him to come to Columbia, to the small town I was in. And we had a meeting called Community. And it was like 1976, you know, right around that era, before this big meeting in Kansas City in 77. Right. And um, so David came, you know, because I was like his nephew, you know, uh, so spiritually speaking. Mm -hmm. 
And because he came, the bishop of the diocese in Jefferson City, he came and all the priests came from all the parishes. Wow. So they all came because David Duke, Mr. Pentecost was there. He's a friend of John 23rds. He was yeah. in Vatican II. He's, you know, he's pretty well known. He had a sort of a ticket to go anywhere, you know. And um, so we had this three-day meeting and it was really wonderful. And But at the end of that meeting, I was had a little guitar and I was leading. I was a kid. I was leading the meeting. And at the end, uh, David and the bishop prayed for me. He asked the bishop to come and lay hands on me that my life would be devoted to uh, unity, hmm. body of Christ, you know. Now, that that was a long time ago. So, so I think there was an impartation that came to me at that time, uh, you know, from people who really had the grace of God in their life. In fact, the bishop was very funny back then. He, when he finished that, he said, I think you're, I'm making you a deacon now in the church. You <laughs> Here I am, pastor of church. But what happened, the bishop at that time wrote a letter to, to Roman Catholic students who came to the university. They received a letter from the bishop that they, he encouraged them to come to the Bible study I was teaching. Mm -hmm. And I would teach at the Newman Center mm -hmm. and on Friday night. And, and so it became quite, a, um, quite an ecumenical yeah. happening back then. So with all that, let me kind of move along here. My denomination at the time thought I was nuts. Mm -hmm. They were not as <clears throat> they were not as into the uh, being fellowshipping with priests and everything else. So I was asked to leave um, my group. <laughs> I, I was I was fired, <laughs> you know from. Uh, and it was really interesting because I didn't know what to do. I was not quite 30 years old. Sure. And, um, and I, I met a man who, another minister, and he explained to me, he said, Joe, you have to pick a tribe. You can't just have, you know, like I, I called myself, I said, we weren't Protestant, nor were we Roman Catholic. We were just Catholic. We were just one. We were just the body of Christ. And he said, you know, you're a little bit out of your mind. So he encouraged me that, uh, I need to sort of pick a tribe mm. and not pursue this, what I was doing. So I wound up going that route, building a congregation, a large church, and, you know, and became fairly successful in that world. So now let's roll the tape forward years later. You know, I, uh, Pope Francis, now it is 2013, I believe it is. Pope Francis is elected Pope. And I was no longer pastoring. Uh, my dad had passed away. I was helping my mom in New York. And, and uh, I was in New York City. And it was about 3, 3.15 in the morning. I was awakened. And I went into the living room. I believe, I, you know, some, you can tell when you have experiences with God, sometimes you start knowing, hey, wait, this isn't just indigestion. You know, this is something's happening here and I, I sat there and I felt really a strong unction to pray for the newly elected Pope and I thought it was strange you know like what in the world would I you know I mean this is 2013 I'm talking about 1975 and 1976 and as I prayed uh, well Lord bless him I hope he's you know given health strength you know I didn't know what to I didn't even understand what I was doing all of a sudden, I heard real clearly in my spirit that um, 
brought me back to those tables I talked to you about, those seven tables. And I heard real, real clearly, um, that's what I've called you to, and that's how you're going to end your life serving the body of Christ in Christian unity. And you're going to be working with this Pope because he has that vision. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a pretty interesting thing to hear, you know, when I told him, you know, I'm going to be serving with this Pope. Um, you know, my wife woke up and came in the room late about 6 37 in the morning, and, and I told her this story. And now I can give you, I don't want to take all day, but through a chain of unbelievable events, which we didn't realize, I didn't realize, I met someone I hadn't seen in 20 years on the street in New York City. Next thing you know, I was in Rome. Next thing you know, within a few months, I was at Domo Santa Martha, standing in the hallway with this friend of mine who I hadn't seen in years and who walks out of the door, Pope Francis, hmm. by himself with nobody around him, nobody in the hallway. And he sees this friend of mine and, Oh, walks over. And that's how I was introduced to Pope Francis. (laughs) Providential. It was providential. Yeah. And so that, so that kind of, if that helps a little bit about, so, so that's when, uh, I think you asked me if I'm not mistaken about this, my journey. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I wound up realizing that John 17 is the longest prayer that we ever hear Jesus pray. It's the Summa. I think it summarizes the Bible, God's intention for the, a Trinitarian relationship that he called us into because it's all about relationship. And he asked that we be one. He told us to pray that way, to believe that way. And so that's kind of um, what, what reason why it's called John 17 is because it's just a prayer. It's a reference. And did you start this, uh, did this idea, this deepening, uh, this draw to John 17, uh, come around the same time where you you met this friend on the street was the lord kind of opening your eyes for to remember these things in some ways yeah and when i prayed that morning for the pope and um later on i heard pretty clearly you know i mean you know it's charismatics and we kind of have this you know it's either a hunch or it's the holy spirit or or maybe it's just you're nuts but you know some way or another we that um i had a home in phoenix arizona and uh, I sort of felt like I was supposed to uh, begin in Phoenix, Arizona, yeah, and go to pastors, go to the and 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 what I heard, this is my what I heard, is I was to go to the Roman Catholic Church as the elder brother in the body of Christ, and ask them to repent for for their part in the division in the body of Christ, and open up their arms. Mm-hmm. And that I would go and bring the younger brother, you know, um, back to the table and that we would fellowship together. Mm-hmm. And when I felt that really strongly, uh, I actually saw Pope Francis do that some months later in, in, in Cazare to Italy at a friend of mine's congregation. I see. When he walked in and opened up his arms and said, I'm the pastor of the Roman Catholic Church, and we've sinned against you. And I came from my, and he, he used this wonderful illustration. He said, when, when Jacob sent his 10 sons to Egypt, uh, thinking he was sending them there to get food, he was really sending them there to get their brother. Mm. And he said, I've, he said, I'm the pastor of the Roman Catholic Church, and we've sinned against you. The Pentecostals in Italy had gone through a lot of problems during the 
Mussolini days. And, and, uh, and he said, I've come today for my brothers and sisters. Hmm. And he did it so humbly. And it was exactly what I saw when I was praying. Hmm. And so that's been a pattern that we have done is that I, I, I go to bishops and pastors um, telling them we're not starting another organization. We don't need another church. We don't need another parachurch. We don't need another order. You know, we're not, that's not our thing. We're here to serve the body of Christ um, and bring them to a table. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not coming from a pulpit to a table and, and let's begin the way Jesus said to begin. Let's begin at the feet. Yeah. And let's start relationally and love each other the way Jesus said to love each other. That's the command he gave us. And that if we trust that command, then unity will be the gift that follows. Yeah. You know, that's kind of. Yeah. And the, kind of the imagery and something that I've noticed just in my own ministry that resonates when I hear you saying these words is, you know, you mentioned the seven tables yeah. at your early experience and how to invite people into something that isn't just another table. It's, it's disarming. Uh, it's a, a level of vulnerability. Um, and it implies um, a pre-existing unity. And so yeah. I, I know with, uh, you know, you and I have spoken a little bit, but uh, before the John 17 movement, it's uh, one of the things that you guys will focus on is, is table fellowship, is being together yeah. with as Christians. Mm-hmm. And they've done a lot of that in Arizona and other places as well. What are some of the ways in which you've seen people experience Christ in one another that's kind of been surprising to them or that, that has opened up really because of this level of vulnerability that's given in these spaces? I think, I think a good way to explain, maybe a good way to explain that is, you know, in the Bible, you never see the apostles, the writers of the New Testament, ever putting their function in front of their name. Mm-hmm. You'll never hear Paul or Peter say, hi, I'm the Apostle Peter, or hi, I'm the Apostle Paul. They always start off with Paul, comma, called to be an apostle mm-hmm. according to the will of God. Mm-hmm. Peter, you know, same thing. They always, because their function is not what, uh, is not what joins us together. Mm. It's our commonality. Mm-hmm. When Peter goes to Cornelius's house and Cornelius bows down, Peter says, no, 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 picks him right up and says, hey, I'm Peter. I'm, you, I'm a man just like you are. And, and there's so the table, what happens at the table is the function gets put aside and you're just a brother and sister. You're just a fellow human. And you're sitting at a table and the table to me represents we do not live without food. We die. Food drink we need beverage we we need liquid we need and everybody around the world whether it's rich or poor they have some form of a table where they come to sustain life and they eat Mm -hmm. it's at that table jesus did it at the table right where we realize that there's another commonality that we have besides the need for for nourishment we have the need for spiritual nourishment and that spiritual nourishment comes from our maker through each other (laughs) that's how he's chosen to do it. Mm -hmm. He's chosen to say that you're, you're a body, you're my body. So you're a hand or you're an eye or you're a foot, you know, imagery in Romans and and Corinthians, you know, we have, and so don't, the foot can't say, 
to the ear, I don't need you. I mean, you know, where would the sense of hearing be? The eye can't say, I don't need you, you know, to that. I mean, we need all the different parts. So all the different parts of the body of Christ, you know, are, are divided. What would a body be like if your hands over here and your ears over there? But when we come to the table and we put our function behind us and we start out saying, Jesus told us to begin at the feet. So I'm here today to say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner just like you. I'm, I need Jesus just like you, whether you're a bishop or a cardinal, the Pope does that with us. I mean, I mean, you know, we, and here we are. Now we respect God's called us to different, but once, but that comes second, we have to get it. We have to get first things first, you know, and it's relationship. This whole, everything is about the relational. I mean, the whole reason for salvation is to bring us back into relationship. Yeah. It's not to bring a religious system in place and a bunch of rules and regulations. It's to bring relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's bringing a family that's divided back together. And so I think that John 17, well, the reason why we focus on the table, you know, I think that in this particular century that we're living in, uh, which I felt when I prayed in the beginning, the last century will be, historians will write it as a Pentecostal century, a Holy Spirit century because the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal awakening, I mean, all this stuff. This century, I felt God is driving us to unity. Hmm. The, the, the division in the world will be seen this century. And it happened. It's happened ever since that. I felt that it's happening more and more. Go ahead. You, want, you, yeah, say well, you know, this is uh, so optimistic and so <laughs> counter to what you hear a lot of people saying in the, in, in the kind of professional ecumenical world. It's very typical to call it call it the ecumenical winter, which I've had some friends recently point out that, well, that's a very Western thing to say. I grew up from a country where we didn't have winter. And yeah. So, yeah. But there's a sense in which the way you're describing this, it's, it's no, the, the Lord is actually doing something here. Maybe we should uh, listen and pay attention. Yeah, um, yeah. absolutely. Because think of it this way. I'm saying, so I, I really felt this century is all going to be about how do we narrow the divide? The, 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 we have horrible divides in our country in families political divides racial divides generational divides you know gender divides i mean there's all this stuff going on right it's everywhere and that's actually an opportunity because jesus said you my followers are the light of the world Mm -hmm. so what i try to say to people is the world is more a reflection of the church then the church is a reflection of the world. Mm. Because if we're the light, what is the bushel that Jesus said, when you put that light under a bushel, what goes dark? The world goes dark. And what's the bushel? I believe it's division. I believe the number one thing in the whole New Testament is about division. You know, Paul writes to the Corinthians about that. Every book is all about the call is that we're called to love each other. We're We're called to put on display God's relational desire for his creation. And so as the body of Christ, that's our, that's our number one mission. That's our, no, no, that's our witness, be witnesses of the unity of the Holy Spirit. The unity within the Trinity should be manifested through the body of Christ. Yeah. Anyways, that, is that all? Yeah, I mean, obviously, too, with uh, Jesus' own words that, uh, you know, they, Father, may be one as you and I are one, so the world may know that you have sent me. It's directly tied to that witness. Is, and when we separate that, 
uh, and we become divided within ourselves, it hurts that witness in many ways and hurts, you know, who we're proclaiming Christ to be. Yeah, because we see what, what happens, what ha at least what I've discovered is, so I had this experience and then I got in with the, a Pentecostal denomination. Well, they sent me to, a, to their training school, their seminary, their school. Well, when you go to these places, it's very interesting. I started realizing when you come through any of those systems, how do you come out the other side? I'll give you two examples. You usually come out the other side by me being able to tell everyone what distinguishes our group from the group down the street. Hmm. Let me tell you why we're different than the Baptists, why we're different than those Roman Catholics, why we're different than those Episcopalians. Our doctrine is a little bit better. Our understanding, our hermeneutic of the scripture is better than theirs. When in actuality, that's crazy. Hmm. Because, uh, and, I, and you could read um, catalogs. I looked at the catalogs of all kinds of schools in every denomination. And I've never found yet, they might be if somebody listens to our podcast can let me know, I've never found yet a course on love in mm. ministerial preparation. <laughs> now, the summa, the summa of the Bible, according to Aquinas, you know, when he, when he uh, gave up writing and he said, all I've written is straw, after he had a transcendent experience of God's love. Blaise Pascal, famous philosopher. You can go through and then read the scripture. Paul, the same thing. I want you to know, I want you to pursue and know this love that surpasses knowledge. So God's called us to experience, experience something that we can't fully understand. Mm -hmm. And what doctrine is, <clears throat> is trying to say we do fully understand, mm -hmm. but we don't. So so I like to, I did this with one of the cardinals at a conference that we were to speak about Francis's understanding of Christian unity. And I used a card game as an example for hermeneutics. And I could imagine playing poker saying, I'm gonna, this is poker. So, so if you play cards, if you have a pair of tens, so Nathan, you get a pair of tens and I have a pair of eights, you win that hand. My eights are real but they need to submit to your tens, right? I mean, if we're playing a card game. Well, what happens if you got the royal flush? And you're sitting here and all of a sudden you get rarely, you get the royal flush. What are you going to bet? You're going to put all your chips in because you can't lose. Can't lose, right? So does the Bible have a royal flush? Now, it doesn't mean that your pair of tens or your full house or your thing is, is wrong. But when the royal flushes on the table, everything submits to it. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is, what is the royal flush? Tell me, I mean, we have, we have Christmas. We have Easter. We all believe in that. I mean, no offense, but, you know, I mean, everybody's celebrating Christmas and Easter. We have God, for God so loved the world. Paul says the greatest of these, faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love. If we don't have love, even if we give everything away, it profits us nothing, right? I mean, isn't this the scripture? So how can love, God's love, and God's desire for him, his people to be one family, not be the royal flush? Mm -hmm. 
how, how could it not be? And how could we make something else put something above that? Yeah. And as you were kind of talking about the um, the imagery of the table, I couldn't help but have the image of, you know, the Rublev uh, Trinity, which is, you know, these three individuals around the table together in this, you know, unique kind of community and unique communion. And how it's so interesting, you know, the, the idea of, of, of doctrine, the idea of, of theology, it's supposed to expand us beyond, like these are, these are kind of supposed to be touch points in which we see God as we try to describe this mystery of God. Um, but in a lot of ways, as we continue to engage this, and, and you mentioned St. Thomas Aquinas, these, these people who are doing this work of theology, these pastors and whatnot, they're soul doctors. And as yeah. we connect our soul more and more, to the the trinity we recognize that if god is eternal then we are ever going into the expansiveness of god which if god is love then it's ever expanding and so there's in a way that uh you know we we should be able to go through this connecting through this the the analogy of being is this this simple idea of you know what basically is uh, something that looks like God is not like God. You know, it, it keeps expanding us. This is a way that we try to use our language to get it. But if that language doesn't allow us to go through and beyond, then it's actually going to be confining and we're not going to find ourselves at the table anymore. And maybe we're misusing our doctrine. Maybe we're misusing our understanding of how theology connects us to God in a, in a yeah. more beautiful way. Yeah, we, 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 have, we have, we think we have, the answer is, that it's beyond our comprehension. Mm -hmm. Paul said that. Mm -hmm. He's very clear. I mean, the mystery that he was kept hidden, that he revealed, he says, I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Mm -hmm. You're, that's an experience. That's, a, a, that's living a life that is completely different and trusting love. So trusting love is a very different, trusting my doctrine is easier than trusting love. Mm -hmm. Because when I'm trusting love, uh, if I'm a Protestant, I go to a Roman Catholic mass and I go, I don't understand what's going on here. But you know what? I know God's present here. Mm -hmm. If I go to some Pentecostal, well, I don't know what these people are doing here, but God's present. Yeah. If we're going to start dissecting, you do this and you do that. Every parent wants their children to love each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're all different. I have children. One's, one's politically different than the other. One's you know, run their family different than their family. But my goal is the, as a parent is to have them all come together and love each other. Mm -hmm. And sitting around a table, to me, in the Bible, tables are everywhere. The Lord meets Abraham at a table. When you get to the end, Jesus at the Last Supper, Jesus was a, a big foodie guy. He was always at someone's house, you know, having dinner, right? He was always, you know, I'll come to your house. Like he is Simon the Pharisee. I'm sitting there. And he was always doing that and all his lessons. And so ask yourself another question, a real simple question. The long, one of the longest discourses with anybody, a revelatory discourse is John chapter four with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, right? And it comes right after John chapter three with the, the Pharisee Nicodemus, wonderful man. And he begged Jesus to reveal, are you really him? Are you him? And, he, and Jesus looked at him and said, you don't know, right? You're supposed to be the doctor of the law here. Yeah. The woman at the well, he told her who he was. Nicodemus would have given every, anything for him to just tell me you're the guy. The woman at the well, he did. So my question is, 
does that still take place today? Mm. The the more educated, and I'm not knocking, believe me, I love people like Consula Mesa, adore, you know, these brilliant people. And I think brilliance is wonderful. Scholarship is great. However, there's a danger to it. Because in that danger, you're starting to trust in more than just a revelatory experience. Mm -hmm. And when you go to the scriptures, revelatory experiences become pretty, pretty significant. Paul has a dream. Mm -hmm. And he says to his companions, last night, I had a dream. And a man from Macedonia told us to come over and help him. And I, we could, we could. So we've just we walked we've just walked a thousand miles in one direction. Now we're going to go back the other way. I don't know about you, but that's a little bit weird. What? That's a great point. <laughs> Up on the situation of that dude. Yeah, I really like this. I mean, um, Unitatis Redentio Gratio, which is the decree on ecumenism from Vatican II, says there can be no ecumenism worthy of the name without a change of heart. And we have yeah. to we have to lead with that. Um, and you know, sometimes you get involved in whether it's you know professional ecumenists and it seems like ecumenism is something they do for something else sometimes um it can be in order to um, move towards a particular kind of vision that they might have Mm -hmm. Uh, but what i hear you saying is is how do you lead with this sense of humility when we go into the the table with other family members sometimes who are coming from different religious uh, and christian views especially it, it just feels like, oh, we're going to he- sit here, we're going to talk doctrine, and we're going we're gonna to argue about this as if we really know, as well as like a Cantal of Mesa or somebody about these types of things. And like, no, well, how, do we, how do we kind of lead with a sense of humility? Because what the Lord is calling us to is a purity of heart, that when we are engaging in ecumenism, we need to continually pray and continually have this openness to our own internal conversion. And that can come about in a lot of different ways. And, and you mentioned how you felt that the last century was kind of this Pentecostal awakening in some ways. And this new century is, is an emphasis on unity. And you work uh, through an organization called Caris uh, through the Vatican, um, which is really kind of, I, I feel, as, as I, the little bit that I know about this organization, it kind of captures this, this charism, this type of personality. Could you maybe just describe a little bit of your work that you're doing yeah. with them? Yeah, well, uh, Karis is was formed uh, because of Pope Francis's interest in taking the Roman Catholic Charismatic Renewal, which you know has been around for fifty plus years now, and bringing it together and forming a service. So Karis is a service to the renewal, and it has three um, three missions or you know three objectives. And those objectives are are three. One is the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for the whole church, not just for people in a back room somewhere on Thursday and the, you know, or a community. You know, know, it's it's just, you know, it's it's for the, it's for the, it's for the, it's at the center. You know, that's bringing Jesus back to the center, you know, number one. The second uh, thing, and not necessarily one, two, three in order is, um, Christian unity, you know, and uh, to that the Roman Catholic Church is needs to reach out and we need to see the whole body of Christ as brothers and sisters. You know, we are brothers and sisters together. And so Karis is helping the renewal reach out. That's where my role comes in. 
my role comes in in the um, in helping uh, teach on how does this come about? How do we practically bring unity out of the diversity? You know, how do we do this? The third part of it is caring for the poor, the marginalized. And we all agree with that, you know. So those are the, those are the three things. So I'm involved in that piece. Now, my, my role in doing that is not to be, and I'm not want to be, sometimes I get a little bit, I'm from Brooklyn, so you can get a little sarcastic when you shouldn't be. You know? but, but, you know, intellectualism, intellectuals are wonderful and we need them, but intellectualism, a lot of the isms don't really lend themselves to being pliable and being flexible. So when we come to a table and we talk about relational reconciliation, not doctrinal alignment. And as Francis said, and other people have said, you take the wonderful theologians and scholars and they do good work, put them on an island and they'll be there and come to unity the day after Jesus returns. You know, they'll, they'll be there, you know, just let them talk away. You know, God bless them. Yeah, that's right. And, I, and that's just been history. But we can walk together and have a gelato, share a coffee, um, we live in set. We live in localities together. We work in different, insane places together. How can we come to a table, break bread together, and start? As I say, start at the feet, not at the head. Start it in serving each other. Start with the understanding. Let's. What did Jesus pray for? What command did he give us? So I have these very simple guardrails that we go on. One is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew seven. He said, "Don't judge." So let's not proselytize, okay? I, we're, we're, you know, if this is going to be true Christian unity, all boats rise in the tide, you know? I wanna see parishes flourish, churches flourish, and the shepherds of those places come together and the people come together recognizing we're family, we really are. And maybe we'll develop a harmonious orchestra, you know, through all this rather than be playing different notes everywhere. So we, we, we start off, with saying don't judge that's another word don't let's not proselytize let's not say infant baptism is bad and this you know i mean all these different things that we have our doctrine is superior to your doctrine you know you get all down that road and the second one the second guardrail is i want i'm giving you a new commandment jesus said he said it very clearly he said it three times during the last supper during that night I'm giving you a new commandment. I want you not, I want you to love one another as I love you, not as you love yourself. And he said that on his way to the cross. Mm -hmm. Correct? I mean, you that's that's a guardrail to me. If we stay, if we stay in that lane of not judging each other, that's not proselytizing and loving as Jesus loved us, loving each other that way, I get I think we can go pretty far this century. And if we do that, that's another way of trusting, trusting God's love, trusting him, not trusting our doctrine, trusting him. And if we do that, unity, I believe, will be the gift that comes. You can't just do unity and you can't do it based on even though causes are good. So what happens is, OK, we're, we're not in favor of abortion. So let's rally around abortion. Well, let's rally around this. Let's rally around that. No, before we do that, we're brothers and sisters. Let's come together and acknowledge that we've been divided and let's tell the world, let's repent and say, we haven't shown you 
how human beings who claim the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior and the King, how they live together and yeah. care for each other. Um, does that, I mean, it's, I know it's not, it's not really heady, but it's very practical. And I think it's the hunger of every human heart. And I'll end with one thing, the joy and sorrow I've discovered in every human being, that's an eternal truth that goes back from David and Jonathan in the scripture. You know, nothing about David and Jonathan's world is similar to our world, you know, but there is something similar about their relationship. Mm -hmm. They loved each other. And when they parted and they hugged and wept, it says, and David more so, there was a relational truth there. Mm -hmm. When Rachel's weeping for her children, when Herod slaughtered the children, when Jesus was around, why do mothers still cry? What the, the thread that goes through the human heart is relationship. The joy and sorrow of every human being comes from their relationship above everything else, mm -hmm. above their doctorates, above their positions, above it comes from their relationships. Talk to any mother or father. Why did Mary have her heart pierced when Jesus's heart was pierced, when his side was pierced on the cross? Because that was her son. You know, and I just think that if we will focus on what God created us to be, relational beings, and love is the only answer that's going to heal, that love wins. We have love wins not hate so that's kind of uh, maybe that's a little bit i don't know if i'm making am i making sense to you at all no, it's lovely and maybe it's because i'm talking to a pentecostal here but i keep saying i'm having these images so but <laughs> one image that i have is and it, i'm reminded of this as a lutheran theologian he's passed now but he's he's fabulous uh, robert jensen mm -hmm. and um in his uh his one of his books he's talking about the trinity and he he alludes to it as as kind of like this great like musical fugue in which all these parts are living and working in harmony. And that sometimes there's um, where you will pay attention to one taking the lead, but they're always working and, and kind of coming in and out of uh, those harmonies. And, you know, in what ways does the church that's representative in the sense of koinonia, sense of mutual exchange, just like the Trinity, might be able to, to live that out in different ways, even if we're not... Uh, at the moment, structurally united. Uh, maybe at the moment, we don't fully understand where the other person is coming from. But our unity, our love for the other person is what's actually the binding harmony within that. And as we continue to work together and to see uh, and understand the other person acting in humility, we get to see that that few kind of coming about in different ways. And so it's a way that the church can act united, even though maybe at the moment, you know, there's there's different ways in which we aren't. And that allows our unity not to be a secondary good, kind of like what you said. It's, it's not just something that we do for something else, but something right. that desires. Well, let me ask you, have, you know, I didn't know this, but I learned it from a friend of mine. If you ever go to a, a, pre, a play, like a musical, you know, on Broadway, you ever been the one where you hear the orchestra in the beginning there, you know, it sounds, you know, they're all. Yeah. I that. always thought they were tuning their instruments. Yeah. Right. But that's not true. What I discovered. You okay? Mm -hmm. Do you hear me? Oh, yeah. What I, what I discovered is they're actually playing their part. Yeah. They're practicing their part. Mm -hmm. So they're playing, but they're not playing in harmony. Mm -hmm. They're just playing their part. So when you hear all that sound, you hear all the instruments, 
you know, I thought they would know they're actually playing their part. Not until the conductor comes, taps the thing and goes, now it comes into a harmony. So what I'm saying using that little illustration is until we come under Jesus's prayer, we're playing our instruments, but the world's hearing a horrible sound. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not a great harmonious sound, mm-hmm. but when, what, how do we come under the conductor? If Jesus is really the conductor, he's written the score. He's written the script. He, it, we're playing his song and let's sing his prayer. And he's saying, I want you to love one another as I loved you. If we will trust that, the sound will become beautiful and it's attractive and it's harmonious and it becomes the light of the world and the salt of the earth. That's fine. That's right. <laughs> well, Joe, thank you so much for spending this afternoon yeah. with me and, and hearing about how not just the ministry that you're involved in, but how the Lord has worked in your life in so many different ways and your vulnerability in sharing that and uh, the, the images that you give us to, to move into deeper unity. Yeah, well, I appreciate, Nathan, you and what you're doing. And we just pray together that, that this century will be a, a century where the church comes together as never before. Amen. All right. God bless. God bless.